Hello, hello, and welcome to the maiden voyage of my new project, um, my podcast, and hopefully more associated stuff, High Time for Change. Um, I want to open up by doing a dedication um, to my inspiration for this whole project. Uh, One year ago today, my beloved fiancé, Mike Bullock, lost his battle to addiction when he died of a fentanyl overdose. And... I'd spent a great deal of time trying to get our lives on track, and in the process, I was indicted for a felony. And after trying ILC and probation for almost a full year and completely and totally screwing that up, I had it revoked and I was sentenced to a lockdown rehab. And I had to leave Mike for six months, about a little more than a month after I left for rehab. Mike died, and it was definitely the most shattering experience of my life. But I'm trying to turn it around, and I'm trying to make it so that his life and death were not in vain, and I'm trying to make this a positive for all the other people that are afflicted with addiction, mental health, trauma, bad patterns, lack of self-esteem. There's just so much to this, and it all needs to be brought to light, and the stigma needs to be broken. So we don't lose more people. Sorry, but not sorry. I'm going to cry about this. This was my best friend. And it was a devastating loss for me, his mother, his three kids, his family, his friends, everybody. He was a doll baby. Everybody loved him. He just had a really bad problem. And even though that was a really small part of who he was as a person, it completely overtook him. And eventually permanently. So this project is devoted to Mike. Um, it's for everybody. It's for me. It's for people I don't even know yet, but he's the inspiration and speaking out to other people who could get help and be saved before this same fate is my total goal. So I thought we would talk about what this project is intended to achieve. Um, my goals here are basically education, outreach, awareness, fellowship, and breaking the stigma for all these issues that plague us, so many of us. This is also a big part of my recovery and my continuing education. I'm currently studying addiction studies and hoping actually to take it to a master's level, which is something that I never thought I would do before. I wanted to do the bare minimum and get through it and just start doing the minimum I would get need to do to support my life in the future and to help people. But the more I've gotten into my recovery and the more right I'm doing and the more steps I'm following the right way and the more things are falling into place, I want to take it all the way. Um, This is also a healthy outlet for my extreme addiction to trying to save other people and find solutions for their problems, which are fixable but unfixable usually. I was doing this constantly during my years on the street, breaking my neck to get everybody the help, the rides, the roof, the dope, the rehab, the resources, everything that I could for them. I wouldn't sleep till this was done. Everybody knew that about me. And that's why everybody exploited me for it. But I'm trying to turn that around because there's no way that I'm going to stop wanting to reach out to people and help them. That's just me. Um, this is for everybody. 
this is for me. This is for Mike's family. This is for my family, my ex-husband, my kids. Um, but this is really for everyone out there, whoever wants to share a story, whoever relates, whoever needs fellowship, whoever needs facts, and whoever just wants to listen and see if there's any value there. There are so many people who are addicts, who are spouses and children of addicts, who are parents of addicts, friends, employers. There are so many people to whom this is relevant. And I think the more that you listen, even if this doesn't seem like it pertains to you, I think you'll find a lot that you identify with, or maybe that your child identifies with, or your partner, or someone you know at work. This is so universal, and it affects everyone. And I'm literally going to cover the entire clusterfuck. There are so many subjects that I want to cover, so many, you know, throbbing veins feeding into this big cluster of pain and addiction, loss, trauma. It just keeps feeding into itself and offshoots keep developing. And I'm going to try and cover everybody. I'm going to have recovering addicts, um, professionals from area rehabs, hopefully law enforcement, um, addiction counselors, people who are still in the trenches, medical professionals, you know, just anyone who has something to offer, which is so many people. And all I want is to get voices out there. I want to bring a light into the dark. I want to break the stigma and I want to increase the odds for everybody. This is a disease and it's not curable, but it's treatable. And I just want to share my stories and my insight and those of the people that I'll be honored to have as guests and hopefully do some good out of all this. Um, just a disclaimer, I am not a medical professional. I'm not licensed yet. I am a student and I'm speaking from my heart and my experience, my education, my own rehabilitation, all the research I've done and the experiences of people close to me. Any information that I present on my podcast or any of the associated media platforms will be researched and verified. If you vibe with my advice, if you relate to me, if I raise your awareness, that's wonderful. That's my goal. It's not, however, a substitute for professional help from a medical or psychiatric provider. If you need urgent professional help, please seek it. Thanks for listening, though, and thanks for your support. Um, I've always been interested in broadcasting, per se. I'm a lifelong super fan of Howard Stern. Uh, I also love Space Goes Coast to Coast. Uh, I love when Dennis and Dee started a podcast on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I've always loved the show Intervention. And I really loved it when Kramer bought the old Merv Griffin set on Seinfeld and struck up a show. Um, I've always wanted to tell my story. I've been dreaming of making a movie of my life since I was like 15 or 16. I really thought I had some good shit to share and, you know, that a lot had happened to me. I had no clue what I was in for. And it looks like now I'm going to tell my story, maybe in a different way, and certainly with different contents than I ever thought or hoped. But this is who I am now. Um, and I'm not ashamed of anything except the people that I've hurt. We can't keep dwelling in shame in these diseases. Are they're going to keep winning. Um, for the interest of full disclosure, this is really important to some people, the distinction of what it means to be totally sober. I have been sober from my drug of choice, which is methamphetamine, 
I mean, plus whatever else, but mainly meth and other stimulants. I've been sober uh, from my drug of choice and from intravenous drug use, which is another one of my huge addictions, for 14 months now. I am not, however, completely and totally sober, according to the definitions of many hardcore recovery individuals. I do smoke medicinal marijuana. I have an MMC and this is prescribed to me. I do this for a number of reasons. I have a ton of covered conditions. I have chronic pain, blah, blah, blah. We'll cover that. But just in the interest of full disclosure, so you can see if you care about what I say or not, or if I'm qualified to talk to you about sobriety, I do smoke medicinal marijuana there. And I'm not sorry about that. This is something that's very helpful to me and that I can keep in control and that was prescribed to me. I was able to do it on probation in Claremont County and it's legal and legitimate. So there you have it. Um, now I'm going to tell you a little bit about me so you can see where I'm coming from and my background and again, see if I'm someone you can relate to and qualified to give you advice or information about anything. Um, my name is Lindsay. I'm a chick. My pronouns are she, her. I'm 46 years old. I'm divorced, then widowed. I'm a mom of three. And I'm kind of a stepmom, mom figure to a lot more. Not only that I met on the street, but children of my relationships and the, therefore I view them as my kids. I'm a caregiver. I'm very, very moved and get involved in other people's problems. I have done this all my life, but it's been to my detriment so far. I will literally take from myself to make someone else good. Even if it's not someone I, I know well or even really care about, I just need to try and solve their problem. And a lot of people have suggested maybe this is narcissism, thinking I'm the only one who can help them and I've got the tools and I can carry it out and I can make the difference. Mm, there's something to that, but it's really honestly more that I believe I can do this because I care the most and I will work the hardest. I truly will. But I've taken that way, way too far in the past. And I have literally lost almost everything in my entire life because of it. So I am going to focus on me primarily, but just share my knowledge and my experience as I go. And hopefully that helps, but I'm never going to cut my throat again to help someone else. Those are boundaries that I am working on from my recovery and they're pretty hard to keep but I have the presence of mind now through working through my recovery and rehabilitation I have the presence of mind to stop and think about what I'm doing and stop doing it put those boundaries up that has been so incredibly hard for me so far uh, I literally left the street like five or six times officially tried to go home to my family home and stay in there and stop all this madness but thinking about the people and if they were okay and who was going to do for them like I did and wondering what they were doing, even though it's the same shit they were always doing, getting high, hustling, screwing each other over, whatnot. It pulled me back out there. I liked being needed and I liked giving people kind of a treat in what was usually a horrible day. I used to carry little gifts in my purse to pass out to people that I met you know, little lotions and little jewelries for girls and, you know, little treats for guys. I just wanted to give somebody a good day. But all this do-gooding and focus on other people 
literally just killed me day by day until I barely existed. And the, the things that I've gone through in the last two years since I encountered my legal troubles have been so indicative of my disordered thinking. And that's something I'm going to cover a lot in this podcast because it's something that's just blowing my mind day after day now, how incredibly disordered my thinking was in my active addiction and how incredibly disordered some other people's thinking still is who are still out there. I can finally see all this. I'm finally looking, you know, and I, I have a cleared mind that's able to actually see the truth and go back through and see where it went wrong. I mean, all my life, I've kind of been doing a butterfly effect type thing and trying to trace it back to exactly where I fucked it all 10 ways from Sunday. And I've pretty much gotten back to the age of 11 when puberty onset and thus my mental illnesses. But I can't even change that. I was born with these. The choices that I made due to my mental illness, yeah, I wish I could take all of those back. But I can't. I have diseases. They need really scrupulous treatment or else I'm out of control, period. And a lot of people are like this. They either don't realize it, weren't diagnosed, never got proper care in their life, don't seek it now, and definitely don't have the resources to medicate or go to therapy or rehab on their own. And furthermore, when you're stuck in that trap, and yeah, it's a trap. We call our homes traps out there. Uh, And it's like, isn't a trap bad? You know, you fall into it. You don't know. You can't get out. And we're like, no, 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 no. You don't get it. A trap is our home. Well, traps bad though. Like you fall in your trap. You can't get out. No, no, no. You don't get it. Like that's just a word that we use. It means home. It's totally fine. No, it's not a home. Yes, it is a trap. Yes, you do fall in. Yes, you can't get out. So that's just an example of one of the innumerable things I've come up with looking back at my life and the actions of myself and others and just everything we went through day to day and more so everything we were willing to go through. I literally can't believe the conditions that I accepted as either totally normal or I was literally grateful for them compared to how I grew up and my morality and my normal paradigm. It's just night and day. And that's what this disease does to you. And all the accompanying comorbid factors that addiction brings. Um, Anyway, back to who I am. I was born in relative privilege. My family has always been really hardworking and they've worked really hard to build a name and a reputation. They're incredibly solid, ethical, hardworking people. Uh, Even though I've been accused all my life of, you know, That bitch was born with a silver spoon in her mouth. Yes, I absolutely was. I had a silver baby cup with my name on it, all that shit. But you know what? I pawned the silver spoon that was in my mouth when I was born in order to help a friend make bail. So there's that as well. Um, I had a conservative upbringing. Uh, My parents fed us healthy. There was no bad language in the house. Our media was monitored. We weren't allowed to dress inappropriately. We, we weren't even really allowed to have designer clothes unless we paid for them ourselves uh, because my dad just didn't want us to get convinced on that shit, even though he could technically afford it. My dad is a really ethical man of the people, and 
I have to say that he went above and beyond to instill the same thing in us. And one thing I do have in common with my dad is being a woman of the people, desiring to understand people, get on their level, make them feel comfortable, uh, make them feel like you're relatable. And so they'll listen and bond with you. And serving humanity is literally the only way not to be depressed and miserable. Being in your own head is such a fucking miserable experience. We have so many ridiculous, just end times type problems and vices that plague us daily. And the more you sit there and stew about them, it's just an absolute cycle of misery. So serving others is really the only way outside yourself to generate good, make you feel good, make them feel good, and put something great out there. And I've always been one to volunteer and do charity work, fundraising, anything I can do. But I've also taken this to a truly addictive level. Um, volunteerism in an addictive way is a very, very valid addiction. It's a great way to stop focusing on your own issues and get praised for it. I mean, who's going to say you're doing too much for other people? Probably no one, but it's an absolute fact. Um, I'm from an intact home. My parents have been married 48 years. They had a great relationship in front of us. They're best friends. Never remember seeing any fighting at all. Um, my parents were well-educated. I'm well-educated. So is my sister. I went to a good school. I was a good student. I graduated top of my class. My problems were social and mental. I've always been afflicted with the notion that my mother didn't love me as much as my sister. And this has greatly colored my life. I felt very separated from my family, which is my parents and my sister. I felt like I didn't belong. I felt like I wasn't wanted. I felt like I didn't fit in. So therefore, I made it that way. I made a lot of choices and exhibited a lot of behavior that made people not want to be around me. And it wasn't until I became a mother and thought about how I want my own children to know me and remember me that I realized that none of this was my mom's fault or her intention. My mom is a very shy person. She grew up in a household of a lot of turmoil, and she just wants peace. She doesn't like loud noises or fighting or strife, and I totally get that. Mike was the same way. It's, you know, sort of a holdover of childhood trauma, but she parented me the best way that she knew how. You can only parent as well as you were parented and as a culmination of everything that you went through in your life. I couldn't have asked for more for her. She took care of my every basic need and more exceptionally, but she just wasn't the demonstrative mother that I envisioned. She didn't tell me I was beautiful and she loved me and I'm the best daughter in the world every day. I'm the first to admit that I'm a bottomless pit of need. I'm in need of a touch, affection, intimacy, validation, everything. It's very hard to get me feeling content, but that's on me. It's not on anybody else. And I've put it on everybody else for a long time. My parents didn't love me right. My boyfriends didn't love me right. No one was as devoted to me as I was to them. No, was, no, no one was as loyal. People turned on me when their use for me was, was done. 
I've been in a bottomless pit. I really have. I've been a black hole, really, because every fucking thing that I've ever thrown in there has just disappeared and not been enough. And that's what happens when you're not at peace with yourself, when you're totally broken inside, when you have no self-esteem, when you're filled with nothing but original trauma, and then trauma you inflict upon yourself as a result of that trauma. So I'm the first to admit that I am a little high maintenance, but that's just a fact of me. That's the culmination of my whole life, my disorders, my experiences. It's something that I'm really, really trying to change now, but it's such an ingrained habit. It takes forever. And a lot of people who are going through recovery or psychological counseling or some sort of process of healing get really frustrated when things are not happening quickly, forgetting that they've taken years or perhaps their whole lives building up these walls and these habits and these defense mechanisms. It's not going to heal overnight. It might take the rest of your life and you won't get there, but you will get better. So, you know, uh, the problems that I had in high school are the same problems that I've had all my life. They started there, and as I got older and the stakes got bigger, the mistakes got bigger. But the crux of them was always the same. Um, I was from a town and a school district that had three towns feeding into it. Two of them were very, very privileged and well-off, and the third one was like a working-class neighborhood. It was significantly different income and lifestyle-wise, but that shouldn't have mattered as much as it did at my school. Even though I was, you know, pretty much a specimen of the ideal and average student there, you know, came for privilege, intact family, good student, motivated, headed for college. You know, even though I fit that mold, I still, just like at home, didn't feel that I belonged. I wasn't unpopular. People didn't really bully me. I did well in school. My teachers really liked me. I did activities, cheerleading, play, whatever. I still didn't feel like I even existed. Um, there were a lot of times that I wanted to change schools. And my dad said, you know, okay, but your problems are just going to follow you. It's not the school. It's you. And, you know, I didn't end up changing schools for various reasons. And I did graduate on time at the top of my class. And I did get a significant scholarship to a very good college. But I wasn't invested in any of this, didn't want to look at college, didn't care, was overtaken with my depression and all of my numerous boy problems, which have pretty much shaped my entire life, my relationship issues and the type of people that I choose to have relationships with. And this is all really textbook. You know, I didn't get validation and the attention I wanted from my parents. Then when I grew up to be a little teenager, I developed early and I was pretty and guys liked me. So I thought that um, I'm prettier than my sister and I have more guys and I don't need my parents. Bullshit. You can never replace now or back then what you feel you missed out on. Some fucking idiot, which it always was, some fucking idiot's so-called love and attention is not going to replace... Um, the validation and the love and the bond that I was supposed to and wished I had felt with the people who made me. You know, parental alienation is an incredibly, incredibly traumatizing thing. And my parents didn't alienate me. I alienated myself with my assumptions and my mental illness and my 
inability to even consider that my perception was inaccurate. And I've done that over and over through my life. Um, You know, it's funny. If you're from Claremont and you're a homeless chick, you will remember that in 2019, Walmart put out one of their famous tank tops and it said, the struggle is real. And if you don't have this tank top, you were never a homeless bitch in Claremont, period. But it's kind of funny. I always said, and a couple other people with my background out there said, you know, our struggle is not real. We made it like we forged it in iron. We built it with bricks. You know, it's not real. Although that's kind of inaccurate because my struggle, a lot of it is organic. I was born with mental illness. I was born with ADHD that wasn't treated or diagnosed until I was 41 years old. And all the associating things that cropped up out of that were diseases that originated from the original disease. And to an extent, I was always going to be a victim of it and held hostage by it. But it is able to be controlled. And if I had participated in my own treatment before, nothing would have happened that happened. But it went the way it went. I was pretty damn resistant to any kind of psychological or any treatment at all until just now. I had bad experiences early on, didn't trust anybody, didn't care, didn't want to do it, didn't want to open up to people. I don't know why I didn't want to fix my problems. I don't know why I didn't want to experiment with and consistently take medication to control my mood disorders. I don't know why I didn't want to to treat myself so that I could be productive, so that I could have good relationships, so that I could have motivation, so that I could tell the truth so that I could stop being a slave to my many addictions, which by far are not all drugs. We'll get into that later. It's vast. But um, I've always been suicidal. I remember being suicidal way back in my childhood. I Every time something was wrong, I would instantly want to kill myself. I didn't really go so far as to plan it, but I thought about it. And I thought about how easy it would be, how much better off people would be. And what I really wanted when I was a teenager is to blast people and shock them and make them be like, oh my God, we shouldn't have done that to her. My dad actually said something quite astute to me in my early adolescence. He said, if you killed yourself, the only person that you would really hurt is your family and the people that care about you. All those people at school would forget you in two weeks or so. And that actually served as a pretty good deterrent for me for a couple, really some some good years, because I really did want to have that effect. I really did want to get revenge. I really did want people to think that my life was worth something. I really did want people to regret not treating me the way I thought I needed to be treated. But that was just, again, another pointless deflection of my own faults and issues. Duh. That's repeated and repeated all through my life. And I'm not proud of it, but I'm accepting of it. It is what it is. But now that I know my issues, now that I know they can be treated, now that I know I can have good results if they are treated and I go on the right path, it is my responsibility to keep it going. I am totally remiss if I don't. And I am totally responsible if my life ever goes to absolute shit into the sub floor of hell again, because I knew how that happens, how it did happen and how it can't happen. So 
throughout high school, I was boy crazy, as my father says. I still am. I always have been. That's a place where I received a lot of validation that I was missing out on. And I amassed a great quantity of admirers and attention. I spent all my time cultivating this. When it went wrong, I was literally immobile and depressed in my room. I staked everything on this. My attractiveness, my, you know, how, I, how much I was desired and by whom. It was just pitiful and empty. And literally, I did this for years and years and years. I literally could not survive without constant attention from mostly totally meaningless people whose attention shouldn't have mattered to me in the least. But any attention was good. Negative, positive, who gives a fuck? I have it all. Um, this caused me to pursue a lot of people who were not cut out for me. Um, I was very attracted to all the guys in the working class town, which gave me a lot of problems with the girls in the working class town. Girls were always jumping me, throwing bottles at my head, saying they want to kill me, go back to my rich town, leave their boys alone. I mean, I really did have a lot of social problems in high school. And they were usually because of boys or someone mad at me over a boy. I was in the principal's office a lot for social issues. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, I continued my bad pattern as soon as I went to college. And ironically, I even bothered to think with excitement when I went to college. I can be whoever I want to be there. I don't have to take all my bullshit with me. I am whoever I present myself to be. Yay, yay, yay. Well, that's not true. Just like my dad said, your problems go with you. It doesn't matter how much you want them to go away or keep them down or conceal them or be a new person to new people. It comes out because it's you. And if you haven't resolved it, it's coming out. Like after I got to college, I swear to God, it wasn't three weeks before everyone was in one dorm room, drinking, smoking weed, sobbing, and telling their deepest secrets. You know, they were raped. They have an eating disorder. La, la, la. We want to share our problems. We want to identify we want to let people know who we really are. Even if we think we want to hide it, it's inevitable to want to bond with other people and find a solution. So went to college. It literally was not the college for me. I picked it impulsively because a teacher of mine in high school submitted a paper that I wrote to a scholarship competition without my knowledge, and I won. And the college was really expensive and prestigious and the scholarship was significant and I couldn't qualify for any other scholarships because of my family's income. So I went with it. To me, the most expensive was the best. It wasn't suited for me socially. The student population was just generally kind of weird. The town that it was located in was really hostile to the students because it was a very, very, very blue collar town with basically a Harvard type school right in the middle of it. The townies were, you know, pretty nasty usually. And it was just a random place. I remember when my parents took me on the visit or dropped me off there, they were just appalled. They said that there were the, the plainest, homeliest people they'd ever seen, which is true. It was just a bizarre place. And of course, um, after getting there in August, I had already become engaged to a guy totally unsuited for me from a totally different background, totally different interests, 
blah, blah, blah. Of course, I jump right into it. And this relationship becomes a burden. Uh, The guy was really insecure, was really obsessed with me, of course, from a totally different background, was constantly telling me I was too good for him. And eventually I believed it. And extricating myself from this relationship actually made me have to leave the school. So I left the school um, after a year and a half, came back to Cincinnati, still with the guy, but trying to break it off, you know, slowly, and immediately got into an extremely toxic, abusive relationship with a different guy. Um, I was in that relationship for a couple years in my early 20s. I was being beat the shit out of. I was being emotionally abused. Um, I was introduced to more drugs when previously I had only like smoked pot once or twice in high school. And it really kicked off my adult life and set the tone. Like, absolutely. Um, I did eventually get out of that relationship. I met my ex-husband when we were 15 and 18 at my job. And for a long time, I just admired him and liked him. He was so positive, so nice, never seemed upset. He was the polar opposite of my abusive, loud, asshole, drunk, jerk of a boyfriend. And he was like a tonic to my soul. Whenever I saw him at work, he was always smiling. He was always sweet, whatever. I liked him, obviously. And I kept after him for a couple years. He was too young, though. He'd never really dated, and he was real intimidated of me. I was older, going through a lot. But he was always there. And finally, after a couple years, when he got to graduating, he said, if you still want to, I want to be with you. And I'm ready to stand by you, you know, when your soon-to-be evil ex flips the fuck out when you leave, even though he never treated you like he wanted you there other than your money and your apartment. And I did. And my 20s were filled with high functionality, but still focusing on other addictions. You know, when I first got with my husband, I was still at UC living in Clifton, and I was doing more and more drugs experimenting. I was doing like acid, mushrooms, um, cocaine, and one day I met my absolute dream, and it was called ecstasy. Um, when I first took my first role, I remember sitting there on the front steps of a place in Clifton, looking at my two girlfriends on either side and being like, this shit's bunk, nothing's happening. And then like one minute later, completely synchronized, it came on all of us and we're looking at each other slowly and grinning like, I love you. I love you. But this is the feeling I was craving my whole life. I've been severely depressed my whole life. I have borderline personality disorder, which brings on a lot of suicidal ideation and abandonment issues. And I've never felt that chemical feeling of happiness and well-being that a totally mentally normal people might feel. Um, When that ecstasy came on, it just released a flood in my brain of pure pleasure and well-being. And I was stuck on that feeling, stuck on it. And as anyone who's used knows, you're never as high as the first time. You're just chasing it forever and ever and ever, like never even close. You might get good dope, you might get good whatever. It's cool, but it doesn't it doesn't meet the first time. And the more you do it, the more your chemicals in your brain are screwed up, your pleasure centers. I mean, it's just a complete cluster. It's an avalanche that rolls downhill. So I was basically seeking ecstasy at my every possible convenience. That's not something you do on a daily basis, but I was. And I even had a full-time job. 
my father was still giving me an allowance because I was in school. I remember he would give me my allowance on Sunday night. I would drive directly down to Clifton and buy ecstasy with all of it like an hour later. I'm not proud of that. It's just me. I started clearing and cleaning my life up when I was in my early 20s. And I was with my ex-husband. We were living together and both working. He was still in art school. And I'm absolutely sure that I started cleaning my shit up because my father probably told me that if I didn't, he was going to take my car away or blah, blah, blah. That's why I do stuff when I'm threatened to lose my livelihood. And that's a really shitty reason to do things, but that's been me so far. I'm really working on starting to do what's right and what's best for me. And I'm the impetus for it. And I can make myself follow through with it. I mean, with regards to this podcast, even I start big ass ideas all the time, big craft projects, big, big remodeling projects, blah, 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 blah. I buy all the supplies. They're expensive as fuck. They just sit there. I never even open them. I just have never had the momentum. That's my ADHD. Now, thanks to the miracle of the drug Vivance that I've finally, finally, finally gone through all the hoops to get prescribed to me because I'm a fucking stimulant addict and I made it hard for myself. I'm finally able to have the energy, the focus, the motivation, and just the drive to get things done. I just knew when I came up with this podcast, I was going to actually do it. And there have been times in between that I've thought, oh my God, what the fuck am I thinking? No one wants to listen to my shit. I have nothing to offer. I must have been on some sort of grandiose shit the day I decided to do this, even though a ton of people have suggested that I do it. But now with my clearer mind and my new boundaries and my new way of thinking, I'm past that for the most part. And I do believe I can do things. I do believe I can go to school. I do believe I can go every day like I never did at Cincinnati or UC. I do believe that I can attend the classes and do the work. I do believe that I can stay in treatment. I do believe that I will be working again, not in the same field that I did my entire life. I was in banking for 21 years. I was like high up. I was specially trained. I was a senior mortgage underwriter for many, many, many years. I had a really good job. I had a lot of responsibility. My coworkers liked me and trusted me, and I did a great job. And I was also very validated by it. And I was very validated by how proud my father was of my career. But now that I'm a felon, I have lost the chance for all that. I can't work in finance anymore. I mean, maybe I could. I don't have a property crime, but I probably couldn't be bonded through their insurance. I don't even want to go through it. It's gone. Everything I worked for for 21 years, all the knowledge I have, how good I was at my job, gone. Because of my mental illness and my addiction. But I will rebuild my life. I will dedicate myself to addiction medicine. I will dedicate myself to helping others and continuing to grow myself. And I will dedicate myself to what I always should have, me and my family and my loved ones. The only people who were there for me when I was actually down, the only people who have supported me now in rebuilding my life, and the only people who always will, and the only people who ever mattered. I mean, the disordered thinking is so incredibly overreaching that at one time I truly believed, and I showed this with my actions, that totally random people that I met on the street who were absolutely every single one of them drastic drug addicts and thieves and liars and users 
and exhibiting the shittiest human behavior that they possibly could because of their addiction. I believed that these people, their problems, their love and validation was more important than that of my own parents, sister, children, husband. I mean, I sit here all the time and literally think, what was ever wrong with my life? What was I missing? What did I think was out there? What the fuck? But I can't question it. I was sick, sick as fuck. There's no way I could expect functionality out of myself any more than I could expect functionality, honesty, loyalty, or anything noble out of my peers out there that I was investing so much in. I was just completely and totally a victim of my shifted paradigm. And the paradigm that I was now used to made me open to a whole bunch of other conditions and choices and people that I'd let in my life that I would never have tolerated or wanting anything to do with when I was functional and had my life going. It's just so overwhelming to think about how many things seemed totally okay and like a good idea and like everyone goes through this and it'll be fine. Totally fine. It's fine. That's something we used to say in rehab. It's fine. It's probably fine. And that's so indicative of addiction. There's a meme that I saw and the top half is like a cartoon dog surrounded by rainbows and flowers and whatever. And the dog is saying, this is intolerable. And then the bottom shows the same dog, obviously in hell with everything around him flaming. And the dog is saying, this is totally fine. The top panel represents our thoughts about sobriety and the bottom panel represents our thoughts about addiction. It's fine. It's totally fine. Because what else could it be? We have no way out, so we think. We are stuck in hell. So anything that happens there, it's anything goes. Whatever. As long as the dope's there, any other situation you get into in order to get to it is somehow okay. You know, the end justifies the means, allegedly. Nothing could be farther from the truth. So, um... I married my husband after eight years together. We bought a house. I was doing really well at my career. I had recently purchased two vehicles for us. Um, You know, we had money. We had a house. We had cars. We had insurance. We had everything that I felt should make me a real grown-up adult and would catapult me into a different phase of life. That's what I've been looking for all my life is a different phase of life. I always asserted and believed that my life would begin when I had all this stuff or I lost all my weight or I didn't have any financial worries anymore or I lived in a bigger house, blah, blah, blah. No. I made a lot of choices, including initially getting married at all, because I wanted my life to go into a different phase. I don't mean that to say I didn't dearly love my ex-husband. He's the best choice I ever made, the best choice for my children's father, and he's an incredible human. But I was doing it for the wrong reasons at the time. And I regret that. But I was a good wife, and I was an excellent mom. We had three kids in three years. We were busy, we were tired, but we were absolutely thrilled. We loved our babies. They were awesome. They were wonderful. They were all close together, got along great. Every time we went out, people said how beautiful they were, how well behaved they were. I mean, I had it all. I really did have it all. But in my mind, all I could wonder was what I was missing out on out there. Is there another guy that would be better for me? Could I be having more fun? 
you know, this, that, the other? Was I in the right career? I was just always looking away from the present and into a totally amorphous fantasy world in which I might be totally better off. I mean, this is just a symptom of looking away from yourself and your own problems and getting completely immersed in other things. And usually they're fantasies or things that are clearly going to fail or things that aren't even healthy. It's just not my problems. So that's all that matters. Just look away. I started uh, my black diamond of decline in about 2015. I got a new doctor. She put me on a new medication cocktail without knowing much of my history. And it basically put me off the top of the charts like manic wise. All of my vices came out. My vices are gambling, spending money, drugs, sex, you know, anything that's a pleasure. Um, food, uh, volunteerism, helping people. Those are all addictions that I have and they've risen and fell throughout my life. There was like 10 years when I first got married, had my kids, all that, that I was not using anything. I used to smoke pot a lot when I was in my early twenties and I stopped, uh, to get a drug test for one of my professional jobs and I just never started again. But in 2015, this medication cocktail I was given just really took, you know, every inhibition out of my mind. And it definitely took any ability to think about consequences out of my mind. I ran back into someone from my past, um, a former boyfriend. He had a totally different lifestyle than I had, um, was a lot wilder, had a lot less to lose, and was really a very charismatic person. I jumped right on the wagon with that. And for the first six months, I was just literally devil may caring. I had regressed to the teenage years that I felt I missed out on because of my psychological and social problems. And what I failed to even consider is there is no you after you have kids. Anything you didn't do, anything you missed out on, fuck it. It's no longer an option. Your kids come first. I wasn't of this mindset when I got into this you know, tornado of losing control and indulging my every vice. I couldn't possibly even think about the consequences or who I was hurting or anything. It was just frightening looking back how quickly and totally I lost control because of that medication combination. And then I started dabbling again with drugs. Um, the guy partied, did drugs. Everyone he was around and introduced me to was always partying. No one had a job. Everyone was on assistance. Everyone was doing all the flip and dips that you do in poverty and addiction to get money and all the little pill trading and food stamp selling and all that shit. It was my first exposure and it was a deep exposure into quote unquote how the other half lived. And instead of sort of being revolted by it because it's so against how I lived and was raised and my morality and my paradigm, I totally slipped into it. I became one of those people. And while I've always been really proud of my ability to hang with all different kinds of people and not seem like I'm better than them and relate with people of all colors and ages, gender, whatever, um, 
it doesn't extend to literally immersing yourself in the lowest level of people that you encounter. You know, I never understood that there is a separation between the have and the have nots and the people who push forward in life and work their own way and the people who are in generational poverty and tend to accept it and repeat it and repeat it and repeat it and participate in all these, you know, negative, immoral, illegal, extra shit to get by on their very fixed income that they are settling for. And it's not totally their fault. Generational poverty is, you know, a very common affliction. How is someone who's never seen an example of someone who worked, um, someone who waited until marriage to have children, you know, any, any number of things, how could anyone emulate that the same way that a baby learns to walk, watches an older person who knows how to walk, same way a baby learns how to talk, mimicking people. They're just mimicking the examples that they were shown. And it's sad, but a lot of a lot of what happens in this country and with the government is designed to keep them that way and keep the higher ups high. It's very sad and it really just seems to be going on and on. But, you know, long story short, I pretty much overnight went from a well-educated, privileged, happily married mother of three beautiful little kids with a great job, her own house, this, that, the other, retirement plan. I basically went from that girl to someone who was literally street homeless with a backpack in a staggering period of time, maybe four months. And that's how fast it gets you. And that's how completely it gets you. When I first ended up out there, uh, yeah, I'm not from there. (laughs) Uh, Somebody told me, you know, a year and a half into my time on the street that when they first saw me, I was literally glowing like an angel. I clearly didn't belong there. I clearly had money and resources. I was clearly a totally different kind of person. What was I doing there? Was I a cop? Was I a this, that, and the other? Whatever it was, it attracted so many vultures. And the guy said to me, man, the minute I laid eyes on you, I knew they were going to eat you alive. I knew they were going to pick you until you were hardly bones. And shit, if that wasn't what happened, you know, that's exactly what happened. I didn't have the street smarts. I had the business smarts. I had the resources. I still had a car. I was living in hotels, but I didn't know how horrible other people can be to each other, what they'll take from you, what they'll do to you. I I didn't even fathom that. It wasn't in my experience. I couldn't imagine someone doing that to another, but I'll be goddamned if they didn't do every bit of that and more. I actually trusted people that I met out there. I actually loved them. I actually expected loyalty from them and I showed them loyalty. And I was always disappointed and let down like, why doesn't anyone have my back the way I have theirs? Well, one day a woman said to me really simply, after I lost my car, I was really pissed because I could never get a ride anywhere and I literally drove everyone in the whole county. And this woman, just very frankly, she was sick of me whining basically and she said, Lindsay, The people that you helped are not going to be the same people that helped you. They don't have a car. They don't have shit. They needed yours. It's going to be all new people, unexpected people that come out of nowhere that have the ability to help you. And 
that's just it. And I realized how idiotic I was being, you know, respect, loyalty, those are really evolved human concepts. Me expecting them out of people that can't follow the law, can't even stay in their house because they're, you know, making lifestyle choices that make it impossible for them to live under someone's roof. They don't respect themselves. They don't respect uh, romantic relationships. They're abusive. They can't stick to anything. There's no way that they could have developed those evolved human concepts and show it to other people. It's just not possible. But my poor little heart was just trampled and broken because I was giving so much and getting nothing. I now realize that what I was doing was a function of my massive guilt about what I'd done to my family and my job and my life. I was trying to equalize a multitude of sins that I committed on the other side of the fence. You know, if you've ever seen the incredibly classic movie Silence of the Lambs, there's a scene where Dr. Lecter is asking Clarice personal information about herself in exchange for information on the case. And she tells him a story where she was living on a ranch with her aunt and uncle and they had sheep there. And one night she heard them screaming, uh, getting ready to be slaughtered. And she went out there as a child took as many lambs as she could fit uh, in her arms, like as a 10-year-old girl, and just started running and running, wanting to save those lambs, wanting those lambs to stop screaming. And, you know, Lecter suggested that this experience was what led her to be, you know, an FBI agent, um, trying to stop those lambs from screaming, trying to save those victims and hopeless cases. And that just hit me like a freight train. That's exactly what I was doing. I was caregiving and mothering and loving all these broken people who had no connection to me, no connection to anyone, hated themselves, wanted to be dead, instead of focusing on the people it always belonged on, my real kids, my real family. You know, I was just lost in the shame and the mire of my own behavior. And... I'm sitting here working out my lifetime of vices and issues in a totally unfamiliar, ugly, crazy, insecure place. It was just incredibly unsettling. I mean, in the beginning, there was fun. You know, I had a great time. There are a lot of things about the street that I loved. The music, the guys, the fun, the fast times, the thrills. Uh, but you know, like Eminem says, uh, I was playing in the beginning, but the mood all changed. I've been chewed up and spit out and booed off stage. That's exactly how I feel about what I was doing. It went sour quick and it went sour bad. You know, once I lost my car because someone stole it, then it was towed away and it was too much to get out of the impound lot. Once I lost my car and I didn't have anything to be used for so much yet, except for my incredible, uh, propensity to go above and beyond for complete pieces of shit. Uh, it was hard times. And when I actually ended up on the street street, that's when I started hanging out with all heroin addicts. In the beginning, I don't seem to remember many people I hung out with who did anything besides meth. But now I can't even think of anyone but me who only did meth. Once I started hanging out with needle addicts, and I started shooting, which I said I'd never do. I was gone. You know, another friend who recovered said to me, Lindsay, you started to really lose everything when you started hanging around with heroin addicts, didn't you? And I was like, yeah, I did. I absolutely did. 
It's a whole other level of self-hatred, self-mutilation, desperation, and just pure ugliness. Um, anyone who picks up uh, a needle is not a recreational drug user. When you need to get something literally into your veins and your circulatory system as fast as possible, that's a person who's in incredible pain. It's a person who literally wants to obliterate themselves from the inside out. You know, IV drug use has an incredible amount of medical risks to it and disgusting things that happen to you because you're shooting. And still, doesn't matter. The dope is more important. I always said I desperately wanted this period of my life to be over. I was sick of freaking out because someone's in the bathroom and the door is closed and locked or spending 18 hours a day spinning my wheels trying to find dope for my boyfriend or trying to find a ride or trying to find the money to do all this. I wanted to be free of that so badly. I was miserable, but I really didn't think of leaving it. I didn't know how it was going to change. I just wanted it to. Somehow after losing all of my possessions in my apartment, I have found in like the one bag of papers that my mother-in-law was able to get, I've found a couple letters that I remember writing. It was really just kind of a journal piece. And the sadness and the desperation in those is just absolutely shocking and mind-blowing and painful and hopeless. And I felt this way a lot. I remember crying almost every day of 2020 and 2021, literally. And I wanted a way out, but I just couldn't find it. And it's humbling. You know, people were always telling me on the street, you're so smart. You're so much better than this. You don't belong here. You've got to get out. And I knew all that. It registered with me. I did think I was better than most people, you know, just because of my behavior and what I would and wouldn't do to others. And the fact that I still had, you know, pretty high functionality, especially among them. But I just couldn't see that I was worth my own best effort and my life was worth saving. And I still didn't see that. After going through the horrible year of 2021, stumbling through probation, being in jail over and over. I still wouldn't have done any of this to recover my life if I hadn't lost Mike. When I lost Mike, I lost my best friend, my lover, my getting high buddy, someone I loved living with and doing my daily with. I also lost someone who was incredibly limiting to me whose addiction took over our entire life to the point where we couldn't even leave the house for more than an hour because he had to get home and get well. Um, I do not miss the incredible outlay of money. I do not miss the stress. I do not miss the pain of seeing someone I loved so much in such an incredibly debilitating condition. There's so much that I prayed to never go through again, and now I'm not going through it. But this isn't the way that I wanted it. I wanted my person to get better. I didn't want another person. But that's not how it happened. On January 13th, 2022, 
I had my sentencing date for my ILC revocation. I have an F5. I was convicted of possession of heroin and possession of fentanyl because it was a compound containing both. And I was literally facing prison time. My judge, uh, Judge Victor Haddad of Claremont County Common Pleas Court, who I'm eternally grateful to, sentenced me to lockdown rehab. And if he hadn't, I would be dead. I would have killed myself when Mike died. I would have accidentally overdosed and died again from getting something in my shot that wasn't supposed to be there. I would have kept abusing drugs, gotten into worse situations, been even more hopeless. It's hard to imagine being more hopeless than I was, but I would have. And that's literally the only reason that I ever got better. Because I was forced to. Just the same as my dad would tell me he's taking my car away if I don't do X, Y, and Z. Or he's not going to pay for this and that if I don't do X, Y, and Z. Or, you know, my work telling me that something had to be completely done or cleaned up by X, Y, and Z. That's why I do things when I'm up against a wall. What I'm trying to do now is plan my own steps and not put off things that are for my betterment and handle them and find my own life to be worth saving and myself to be worth my own best effort. That's been the hardest part. It really has. You know, at first, I said to everyone who would listen and thought to myself that I'm doing this all for Mike. I'm getting better for Mike. I'm going to school for Mike. I'm getting off probation for Mike. I'm doing all this for Mike because he would have wanted me not to die with him. But now I know that I'm really doing it for me and my kids and my family and everything that can be possible for me. Not only what I've had before and lost, but new things that I can achieve being the person that I am now. So I have a lot of hope for this project. I have a lot of hope for me and I have a lot of hope for a lot of people that I've seen working their recovery. You know, I tend to dwell on, and I think we all tend to dwell on, all the friends that have died, the people that we've lost. And I haven't even really sat there and thought about all the people that we hung with who are successful in recovery, who have rebuilt their lives, who have gotten married and had children and got their children back and started businesses and started working, got back to a healthy physical being. There are so many people who are succeeding and I'm trying to focus on the success and not all the incredible loss and trauma in life. I've always looked at the negative. But in another sense, I'm very, very childlike and optimistic in my heart. It's a real paradox being me. I've been told that time and again in my life. And it's been difficult. But with all the things that have the power to take me down... Those same things give me the power to rise above. My intellect, my heart, my determination, those things are going to take me through. I have a lot of serious enemies fighting me. I have my illness. I have my addictive personality. I have my propensity to reconnect with people from the past that were not good for me. Uh, my propensity to stay close to people who are not good for me and are using me. I have a lot working against me, but I also have a lot of tools within myself to succeed and I have the best support system I could ever have.
I really need to start counting my blessings the way I never have before. I have always said, yeah, I have this, this, and this, but I don't have this, this, and this. And that's all that stayed in my mind is what I don't have, what I need, and what would finally make me a real person if I had it. You know, I always used to say, once I lose all my weight and I'm in perfect shape, my life will begin. You know, when I was the absolute most beautiful and fit that I've ever been in my life, when I was walking around on the fucking street in boots with a backpack in zero degree weather for miles and miles and miles every day, my life was at the worst possible point it could ever be when I finally looked as beautiful as I always wanted to. And that's just the downfall of that type of thinking. If you're always looking for more, even if you don't know what it is, even if it's a fantasy, even if it's unattainable, even if it's not good for you, you're never ever going to flourish in your actual life. You've got to live now. And that's what I'm learning to do. Take it day by day. I'm really not ever going to tell you that beating a drug addiction is easy, especially as an IV drug user. We are used to having relief from our pain and numbness. And us IV users are used to having it instantly. We're used to having it fucking yesterday. We're putting it right in our circulatory system. We have to have it right now. That's a whole other level. I used to say that to my friends all the time when we were shooting up. God, look at us. We can't get in our fucking vein fast enough. And everyone would just giggle. But that's not funny. It's awful and sick. And I'm so glad that I've been relieved of that particular addiction. Not even the drugs, the needles. I became as addicted to the needle as what was in it. And admitting that to myself when I was in treatment was so hard. But that's me. I am going to go through the rest of my life with certain health problems. I am going to go through the rest of my life with tracks on my hands and big scars on my arms from abscesses and all sorts of little reminders. And people who don't really know what they're looking for are not going to know what those are. But I know. And I have worked very hard to not let the shame of that hold me back in life because that's the root of all this, the shame, the stigma, the fear, the isolation. I am not ashamed of suffering the effects of conditions I was born with. I am only ashamed that my actions hurt other people. But I'm an open book. I'm putting all my dirt out there. This is my name. Most of y'all know who I am. You know where I am. You know what I do, what kind of person I am. And I'm putting it all out there without fear so that everybody can feel comfortable admitting their darkest secrets, their darkest faults. Because when we let those out is when we begin to heal. There's absolutely no way that we will ever beat addiction. We will ever beat our mental illness. We will ever beat anything that holds us down until we're honest about it, until we share it with another person, until we start to actively heal from it, until we stop dwelling on it and letting it chain us. Because those secrets and that shame will fucking bury you. It did it to Mike. His childhood trauma overcame him. His loss of his kids overcame him. 
his loss of closeness with his family, his loss of ability to work overcame him. And that happens. It's so easy. I can't even describe to you, if you've never been through it, the level of hell that you take your life to in addiction. You lose everything, everything material, everything you've worked for, every penny you have. I lost my interest in my house, which I bought and paid for for, you know, 10 or 12 years. I lost both of my vehicles. I lost my job and all of the years of my future income until I retired because I would have been able to stay at that place forever and retire out of there. And I lost over $100,000 in my retirement account. Gone. And what I did with that money was I bought additional trauma. I bought rape. I bought diseases that are incurable. I bought scars, both mental and physical. And I bought a deep separation with my loved ones for a long time that I caused. I was avoiding them out of my shame. They knew what I was up to. Eventually, for a few of them, it was too painful for them to keep looking at my Facebook, my fucking ridiculous iced out posts, and my stupid pictures, and my stupid street talk. It was too painful for them. They blocked me. They couldn't deal with me. They still loved me, but they had to do it from a big distance. Couldn't even look at me on social media. That's hard for me to accept, but I totally get it. I totally get it. When my memories on Facebook come up, I'm like, what the fuck? It's embarrassing. I mean, I'm using those memories now as a way to delete those posts because, oh my God, they are retarded. But that's neither here nor there. That's my history. And it can embarrass me, but I need to learn from it. And I need to keep it there for posterity. Some of them I just can't do, though. They're just too fucking embarrassing. I have no clue. None. Disordered thinking at its finest. We begin to believe all sorts of shit about ourselves. That's why a bunch of little idiot white boys really think that they're gangsters. They really think that they're slinging bricks like Kevin Gates. You know, these girls really think that they're Instagram models when they're, you know, 60 pounds, missing teeth, um, (laughs) dressing in stolen clothes, looking crazy as hell. Um just talking trashy. I mean, you really, really do think you are the whole shit of the whole night when you're in that. The more drugs you sell, the more attention you get, the more stolen shit you're able to buy and trade for. You really think you made it. I mean, you really think that this is a group to make it to the top of. And some people actually show pride in being a a big dope dealer, this, that, and the other. They have the best product. I mean, I used to roll with a guy who literally, you know, we tried a new heroin plug and he called me later and literally said, did anyone die? Like totally serious question. Did anyone die off this new dope that we got? That would have been an upvote. Like it was that good. Sick as fuck. Like (laughs) it's just unbelievable. The world I was immersed in. And even I am sort of taking my parents' view on it. My parents have a very endearing way of calling everything I've done the last couple of years that world. You know, that world is this world. 
we're all suffering. Those people are just suffering way out in the open. You know, you can see track marks, you can see needles, you can see them walking with backpacks. You know, they look like shit. They're just suffering and all their trauma is on the outside. A lot of people are suffering the same way. They're indulging in secret vices, secret habits, things they'd die if anyone knew. But it's all the same. That world is this world. I didn't have the eyes to see it before. But I see everything now. I am grateful for the new worldview that my experience gave me. I really did see, you know, the other half of the world. Things I wasn't familiar with. Completely and totally different lifestyles and morals and things to believe in and be against. I am grateful for that. I'm a more educated and tolerant person. I'm more diverse. But there's things I can't unsee. I've always been what I call this a student of the human condition. The theater of the living, the tragicomedy of life. I watch people, I watch things, I find beauty in it, I find poignancy in it. But some things you really wish you could take out of your brain. And you can't. All you can do is build positive on top of it. And with time, it'll fade. But that's a long process, and it's easy to get discouraged. And it's easy to think that you've done so much damage, it's never going to come back. But that's not true. If you find the path for you, if you find the right treatment, the right rehab, the right counselor, the right support system, you can make it. The sad thing is a lot of people literally don't have these at all. Broken families, parents that use, no place they're welcome to be, no place to rebuild their life. You know, a lot of people say to me, you know, Lindsay, you have so many opportunities. You're so spoiled. You have so many more resources. Other people can't do what you're doing. They weren't given that. Yeah, I I know that. They weren't given that. But there are resources to get what you weren't given. And there are ways to work your program, no matter what you came into it with or without. So anybody who's suffering out there, be it with drug addiction or sex addiction, porn addiction, anything, there's a way out for you. It doesn't seem like it. It seems a lot easier to literally just stay buried in a pile of shit that you're in. The vice itself, the shame, the separation, the isolation, it seems easier to stay in there. Uh, It's dark and ugly out there. But it's dark and ugly in there too. It's just people are afraid of change. We know what we know. And old habits are hard to break, but it is possible. I'm 46 years old. I have abused drugs on and off my entire life. I have abused food and dieting and working out. I have abused spending money, credit cards, debt, gambling, um, and more. But wait, there's more. A lot of things. I have been abusing one thing or the other my entire life. When I slip out of one addiction, I go into the other because I wasn't healed. I'm 46 and I'm just now unraveling all this shit. I'm so envious of my friends who got all their jail and 
crime and fucking all drugs over with in their early 20s and they actually have a chance. I worry about the things that I've lost and my ability to rebuild them during the rest of my life. Like, how am I ever going to retire? I mean, shit, how am I ever even going to get a real job again? Forget retiring. Everything that I had planned for my life, everything that I wanted for myself and everything that was expected of me because of how I grew up is gone. And I have to have a new life drawn out. I'm not going to have the career I had before. I'm not going to have the money. I'm not going to have the type of housing. I'm not going to have a good car for a long time. But I deserve to have to work to get all that back. It's not going to mean shit to me if I don't. I've been handed a lot of things in life, but I've also had to earn them all myself. I've had a lot of privilege and a lot of opportunities. And I have systematically fucked up every single one of them. Intentionally. I have cost my father absolutely (laughs) undetermined amount of money cleaning up my messes, paying for tuition to college when I never attended one class, uh, paying for cars, um, you know, everything, anything and everything to try and support me on a good path. And I literally threw all of that in the trash. I've had a lot of success in life and I've done a lot of things right but I've done the things I've done wrong, so much wronger. I mean, I can really honestly high function with the best of them when I'm doing well. And I can also put my entire existence off a cliff in warp speed with the best of them. I always used to tell some people on the street, if you just turn all the energy that you use uh, fucking up into doing good, you'd be unstoppable. There are so many smart, dynamic, sexy, attractive, talented people out there. I met someone every single day where I was just looking at them being like, oh my God, what are they doing here? Just the same as they were to me. There are some people out there that are absolute pieces of shit who were probably never going to amount to anything. And if they take this path, the world's not missing out on anything. But most of the people are are good, normal people with a lot of great things about them. And they just lost their way. And... That's what I'm trying to do is light up some ways. I didn't think I had any, but I have a shitload. If I want to look at them and if I want to follow them. The fear of uh, something new is real. The lack of self-esteem and belief that I can ever get better is real. Uh, The fear that I have wasted a bunch of time with my parents and they're older and I might lose them is real. There's a lot that's really real that I face every day trying to get better. But the positive results of everything I'm doing literally cannot be denied. There have been so many doors open for me in the last eight months. It's unreal. And it really blows my mind when I think about this is all I ever had to do in the first place on ILC is work my program. I wouldn't have been convicted of either of my felonies. I wouldn't have gotten locked up. None of that. But I can't question it. I wasn't ready then, and everything was happening in divine order. It really was. And I hate and feel guilty for saying that and feeling that. You know, um, I found out about Mike's death when I was away in my rehab. My counselor pulled me into her office and told me she'd gotten a call from a friend of my mother-in-law, and it was urgent. I knew immediately what it was. 
And after I got off the phone with my mother, his mother, etc., getting the details and crying and whatever, my counselor, who was, you know, a little bit like me, kind of metaphysical, hippy-dippy chick, she said, you know, 222 is a very powerful angel number. And it means a door is closing, but a more important one is about to open. And anything is possible now. Nothing's holding you back. And that's very fitting. But I hate thinking that Mike was a burden that was holding me back. He wasn't. I was holding myself back using him as my instrument and my own problems. That was freeing for me. And it was freeing for him. He was at peace and he was so tormented a lot of the time. And that's the only way this makes sense. That it somehow worked out for both of us. And that's the only way that I can really look at it. Because I just, I can't deal with the incredible loss and the unfairness. And just the vast emptiness of life without him. And knowing that his three kids had to lose their father. That really they hardly knew. The baby never knew him. And his teenage kids... He'd been absent for a long time for various reasons, mostly because of shame. And he'd reached out to family members in his last year of life, and that's that's really good. But he still believed that he was inherently unwanted and that his absence would do people good. And it's an absolute fact that what I have in my life now happened because Mike left my life one way or another. That's a fact. But it's still difficult to celebrate my successes knowing that it's a lot because of losing him and that he lost his battle. That I didn't die. And I'm the only one here left to tell our stories and turn his death into something positive and an opportunity for other people. Um... I'm going to tell you a little bit about Mike because, as I said, Mike is the reason for everything I'm doing. Um, He was my best friend, and he's really my co-host here. I've felt a lot of messages coming through ever since I started this. They've been really important. There have been some messages from him about how he passed away, which has been a point of mystery and contention for me and his family. Um... There were a lot of things that I felt were being sent to comfort me and let me know that he's here with me and he's going to feed into this too. And he will always be with me. Mike was a doll baby. Literally anyone who knew him would say the same thing. He was funny. He was friendly. He had a great smile. He liked to have a good time. Mike was awesome with computers and phones and electronics. There's nothing he couldn't fix. He was on my laptops and computers constantly, upgrading them, adding new stuff. You know, he loved it. I wanted to buy him his own computer business so he could work for himself. And I always told him, you know, if you just get sober, shit, you can have a skateboard, a husky puppy, uh, your own business, anything. You know, a lot of people I try to get to recover I can actually know what carrots to dangle to them. You'll get your kids back. You'll be allowed to live with your family. You can, you know, work on your marriage or whatever. 
I didn't really know what to promise him would happen if he got clean. He'd already lost a couple things permanently, and getting clean wouldn't change that, essentially. All I could tell him was that life would be better without this horrible albatross and the monkey on both our backs. But it was too late, and that's the worst thing about it. Um, but anyway, Mike was also um, a really talented skateboarder. He loved skating, and he literally could have gotten a professional endorsement when he was younger. But he got his girlfriend pregnant, decided to get married, and have his kids instead. He was also an amazing baseball player. He could have gotten a scholarship to college if he had stayed in school and stayed with that. But his life went a different direction. He loved music. Really loved music. And I loved looking at the songs and artists that he liked because it gave me a view into his soul. <laughs> um, one song that really reminds me of him that I listen to a lot is Emotionally Scarred by Lil Baby. That's actually a song I need to pl I play when I need to fall apart and have a good cry. But Mike was a totally lovely, unique person. The last thing I ever wanted anyone to think in life or now is that he was just a junkie and his death was predictable and he's better off and I'm better off. <laughs> I'll defend his memory the rest of my life. I'll support his mom and any of his family that need me and I will respect his memory my entire life. Mike had been using heroin for about 11 years at the point that he died. I think he may have tried to get clean a couple years ago for a short time. And then things did not work out as he was promised or he believed, so he threw it all away. Um, during the last year of his life, his decline was absolutely staggering and frightening. Um... Mike clearly had brain damage from all of his overdoses and times without oxygen. His memory was terrible. He forgot things instantly. And he began to act erratically in a way that was not him. He was more aggressive. He was more violent. He was just losing touch with himself. The addiction just kept growing and growing and growing. And then um, a friend of ours started riding around with him and do their little hustle, flip and dip crap all day long to end up with dope in the end. And seems like they got a hold of a different kind of dope. And then Mike really started declining. His behavior was totally crazy, totally crazy. Now that I look back, I mean, yeah, his death was totally foreseeable. He went a lot lower than he'd ever been really quickly. And it was incredibly hard to reach him. He was barely ever sober, couldn't talk to him, couldn't reason with him, and he was far past caring. But he was a talented person. He was funny. He was loving. He had a great heart. He was a great friend, and I have no doubt that he was a very sweet daddy and very beloved by his kids and missed by his kids, and his first wife and the mother of his third child 
and just everyone who knew him. He was a special person, and there was so much more to him than his addiction. So much more. But that monster is so powerful, it'll overtake everything. No matter how much you want to get better, no matter how much your family wants to get better, if you're not ready, and if you're not ready to do hard, hard work, you'll be overtaken by it. It will bury you. And that's the sad thing. A lot of people don't even get into a situation or meet someone or get into an opportunity that has a chance to heal them. It's been too long. They've been going through shit. I can't undo everything they've gone through in their entire life. I sure will try, though, and I'll about kill myself in the process. But it is what it is. I miss Mike every day. Even though every day with him had a serious problem, even though I cried every day, even though I hated our circumstances, even though I desperately wanted him to get better and I wanted me to get better, I still miss him every day. I miss the hope for his recovery. I miss the hope in everything I tried to get him back in his kids' lives. I miss the day when he would be well enough to start working again and feel good about himself. He felt so terrible not working, not doing anything. He really felt terrible about his whole addiction. He cried many times, wanted to get better, hated himself, hated what had happened with his kids, hated what he'd done to me. But it was too overwhelming for him. And this was too big a job for me. You know, when I first met him and we first started dating, I told him I'd never, ever leave him behind. I would stick with him until he got better and I wouldn't give up on him. I wanted to be the person who stuck with him and did the hard work and saw it through. I really wanted to be that. I loved him so much. I saw so much potential in him. But (laughs) that was too big a job for a little old me. I never really understand when something is too much for me to undertake. And then I horribly disappoint myself and lose even more self-esteem when I fail, even though it was inevitable. I did not save Mike. He died because I was not home protecting him. He died because he was consorting with people I knew were snakes and told him not to consort with. He died because his addiction had taken him to the point where dope trumped everything. And that is a staggering fact, but that's exactly what happened. Doesn't mean I didn't love him. Doesn't mean he didn't love me. Doesn't mean he was a piece of shit. Doesn't mean he was lazy. Doesn't mean he, he hurt people intentionally. And it sure doesn't mean that he had absolutely no worth as a person. There were people who knew him in the past that were desperately missing that person that they knew. I never knew Mike Sober. Mike and I were both using when we met. I do not know who he used to be other than the testimony of his friends and family and the feeling in my heart that I have about what kind of person he really was. But I didn't know him before. He didn't know me before. We loved each other in the situation that we were in, and it was very real at the time. My parents asked me often, what would I have done if Mike had been alive and I had come home from treatment? What would I have done? 
shit, I don't know. Leaving him was always next to impossible for me. And I just didn't see a way to separate from him. I was hoping in my optimistic, completely fantasy-based mind that he would use the time I was gone to get clean. Um, yeah, disordered thinking. His death and me losing him was inevitable. Me spinning my wheels and breaking my neck to get him better and putting myself by the wayside was inevitable. Him dying without me there, since I was such an overarching force in managing everything about his daily and protecting him, taking care of him. And that was always going to happen. I couldn't control any of this. I thought I could. And then when I failed, it put me even more in the ground. But part of recovery is recovering your honesty. I've lied a lot my whole life. When I was young, I used to lie to please my dad, who's my world. I've always wanted nothing but him to be proud of me. And ironically, the thing my father hates most in the world is lying. Ethic, ethics are so important to him. And in my desire to be accepted by him, I did the one thing that's most repulsive to him. I lied constantly when I was on the street like every addict does. Everything you're doing is either illegal or you're hiding it or you're ashamed of it or you're cheating on someone or you just stole something from someone. Everything is a lie. Everything is secret. Everything is a scam. No one's doing anything for a legitimate reason. And everybody out there has a tacit agreement not to point out how fucked up the other one is. And we are all hopelessly interconnected in this awful symbiosis because even if someone does you so dirty, even if you overdose in front of someone and instead of Narcanning you, they go through your pockets and take the rest of the dope and leave. Even if somebody's stolen from you, double-crossed you, cheated on you, hit you, fucked around on you, giving you a hot shot, you're still cool with them because one day they might have dope and you don't. Period. It's an incredibly ugly, harsh world out there. I don't miss it. I am proud of some things I did out there. I am proud of the lines that I didn't cross. I am proud of the humanity that I showed to other people. I am proud that I never stole. I am proud that I never sunk to certain depths. But I'm a rare case. I wasn't from there. There was only so far I could really go, but it was far enough for me. And it was way, way, way past even the worst I could imagine myself doing in my normal life and functionality. It's a tsunami. It's a wave. It's a natural disaster. It's an avalanche. It it completely carries you away. But... Grab onto something as you're rolling by it uncontrollably and cling to it and wait until that storm passes and then you're just there. And yeah, you've got to find your own way. You've got to rebuild something. You've got to find a whole new way of life. But it's going to be life at last. Every day that I was out there, I was dying a little bit every day, literally and figuratively. That wasn't life. 
It was literally the suspension and bastardization of everything that life should be. All the principles that people should operate on. All the care that people should take with themselves. All the goodwill that they should show to others. Everything is just completely fucked upside down. It takes a long time to reshape everything you think and believe about life. But the farther behind you get and your addiction gets farther in the rear view, your thoughts clear and things become really evident to you. And if you take that as a learning process, you're going to succeed, period. And that's what I'm hoping to do with this broadcast. There's a lot I'm going to cover. It's going to be nitty. It's going to be gritty. It's going to be uncensored. It's going to be ugly. It's going to be something that is triggering. There are a lot of people who are not going to be able to listen to this because of sensitivity, past trauma, whatever. There are going to be people who can't tolerate this because they're not ready for the truth. And there are going to be people who don't want to listen to it because they think I'm a know-it-all bitch. But if they only knew my intentions and the purity of my heart here, I think they might see it a different way. And if no one ever sees it my way, I still don't care. I'm doing this project with a full heart. I really, really hope to help some people. But overall, this is really going to help me. This is so, so important to my recovery. And I thank you so much for listening. I thank everyone for their support. All the people who donated to me getting my equipment. I mean, that really blew my mind. Um, I'm a fucking drug addict. I had only been sober a year when I asked people to give me money. And they did. Most of my donors were people I went to high school with or from my hometown. Most of them haven't laid eyes on me for 20 to 25 years. But they know Lindsay. They know the type of person I've always been. And they believe in me. And that means a lot because they're good people. And they did know the real me. So if you go out there looking for good things, you're going to find them. If you still got the eyes that only see the worst and the suffering and the lowest common denominator, you're going to find it because it's out there. This world is an ugly, fucked up place. We've gone way too far with our freedom. It takes so much to get us off. You know, the drugs are so strong now. The porn is crazy. You know, everything. The food has incredible additives. It's unhealthy. It makes people hugely obese. I mean, everything we have is out of control. We've gone too far. This is like Roman Empire shit, and it's heading toward the end. And I don't even know if that's a bad idea anymore. But there is good if you believe in it. There is good if you do it. There is good if you stay with it. There is good if you surround yourself with it. And there is good if you believe there is good. And there is salvation if you believe there is salvation. And there is a new life for you if you work for it, and you want it, and you believe in it. So... That's what I'm hoping to explore here on my project. Um, I hope that it's sincerely valuable to people. I hope that they learn to love themselves more. I hope they feel not alone. And I hope they feel empowered. Because I want everybody to have the chance that I had. And I want everybody to know what success feels like and freedom feels like. And if I 
make a difference to just one person, then this is all worth it. So thank you for tuning in. Thank you for being patient with me. This will have more bells and whistles and polish and production value in the future. But right now I'm just trying to get my voice out there. And thank you for listening. I'm not even going to edit this. I'm not going to take out where I stumbled on words this time. I'm not going to do any of that. I'm just going to put it up and send my love and thanks to you all. And I will see you next time. I'm hoping to do this weekly. It's normally going to be like 30, 45 minutes. This is just a fucking Encyclopedia Britannica because I'm giving you the background, getting you ready to go on my wild ride with me. Um, (laughs) You know, like Method Man said, uh, I came to bring the pain, hardcore from the brain. Step inside my astral plane. And you will be in my astral plane. My world is a busy world. It's a crazy world. It's a fun world. It's a dark world. But it's never boring. So I look forward to sharing more of my incredible neurosis and insight and best of intentions with you. Um, Be healthy. Love yourself today. Love your loved ones. And don't waste a single more day. Please. You never know when it's your last. Thanks, everybody. Love you. Bye.